1: plus hello and welcome to new books in the american west part of the new books network i'm steven Hausman, your host for today i'm happy to welcome to the podcast sarah dant professor of history at weber state university we'll be talking about her new book losing eden Welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for today. I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Sarah Dant, professor of history at Weber State University. We'll be talking about her new book, Losing Eden, an environmental history of the American West, recently published by Wiley Blackwell. Losing Eden is a deep history of the American West, telling the story of thousands of years of environments responding to human pressure and human societies responding and changing in kind. Sarah Dan brings that history up well into the 21st century. Sarah Dan, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Before we get into the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became involved in history, where you did your graduate work, that sort of thing.
0: So I um, will say that I am a reluctant convert to history. That was uh, not where I thought I was going to go because, quite frankly, I didn't think I could make any money. Doing history, everybody says, oh, if you do history, you have to be a high school teacher. And my dad was a high school teacher. So I thought, "Okay, that is the last possible thing I want to be as a high school teacher. Um, So I actually got an undergraduate degree in journalism and public relations, decided that wasn't for me, Uh, did a master's degree in American studies, decided that wasn't necessarily for me either. And uh, so I got a teaching job, a tenure track teaching job with a master's degree and no teaching experience at a small College in Utah, called the College of Eastern Utah. And I taught um, environmental studies and I was the entire history department. And I discovered, gosh, you know what? I really like history and I really like environmental history, which was relatively new. And so I went back and got a PhD and um, I wrote on the environmental politics of Frank Church, who was a four term senator from Idaho, and then managed to end up with a terrific job teaching. American West and environment here at Weber State University. So it was a a bit of a circuitous route, but all of it informed uh, where I've ended up now. So I think in the long run, it was a good trip.
1: That's excellent. Um, How did you come to write Losing Eden specifically? How did you come to this book?
0: Well, I so I teach classes on the American West and um, on the environment. And there was no book that brought those two ideas together there are books on the west there are books on the environment but um, quite frankly the books on the environment tend to be much more eastern uh, focused and even the books on the west tended to be about wars and um, pioneer migrations and a lot less about the interaction of people and nature over time which is essentially what Environmental history is and so I wanted to take a look at this place. That is the west that is so profoundly shaped by its environment the aridity here um, the interaction with nature has has made this particular region in some ways I think you can argue more than any other and Looking at the interaction of people and nature over time to me seemed really logical um, and fun So it was a project I embraced because it was something I wanted to know more about and be able to talk about more effectively in class.
1: Okay, great. Um, I want to begin with the title, which is a theme that you come back to quite a few times throughout the book. So why did you title the book Losing Eden and why does that theme come back Mm -hmm. repeatedly?
0: Well, uh, in many ways, the title is A double entendre, as you know from having read the book. Um, I think a lot of people do think of the West as this Edenic place, land of milk and honey. And it's that myth of Eden that has driven and in some ways still drives the way people think about the West. And I, um, I had someone actually suggest that title. Oh, you should call your book Losing Eden. And I initially thought, oh, that is the terrible title. I hate that. Um, because it was going to be the same story that it seemed like everyone else had told. Oh, it was once wonderful, and now it's terrible. But I was out for a run on, on the trails, the foothill trails here in the Wasatch, and it came to me, no, what we need to do is lose this idea of Eden. And so using the title as a way to both draw people into a story they think they know, and then hopefully to tell them a story that's a different story than what they know, that we need to rethink, fundamentally rethink the way uh, we have conceptualized the West and what it is that we're trying to do now. I'm a firm believer in understanding the past, to be more informed about our present and where we can possibly go in the future. And so this idea of losing Eden, to me, seemed really essential if we're going to talk about sustainability, if we're going to talk about moving forward in the West, then we do need to lose this myth of Eden once and for all.
1: Okay. Um, early in the book, you referred to your methodology as a deep history. Um, for our listeners that might not know that term or that method of doing history, what did you mean by deep history?
0: So uh, there was actually a French school that, that talked about the longue durée, which, was, which sounds really pretentious, um, especially if you're going to talk about the West. But, but deep history is this idea that one can't understand the past by just looking at a, a snapshot of years or even a, an arc of uh, you know a couple of um, decades or something like that. But we really need to look deeply into the past. So I start my book with the first Westerners, uh, those who came across the land bridge at least 15,000 years ago. Because in many ways, people often think of the story of America, for example, as starting with Columbus and on that other coast, when, in fact, people have been in the Americas and what is the United States for tens of thousands of years. And they started here in the West, not in the East. And understanding that people have been here for this very long period of time That over that very long period of time, they have managed, altered, shaped, and been shaped by this landscape, to me, really was a a very compelling story that could track all the way up to the the present day and, and give us some thoughts about how to move forward in the future.
1: And then when you get into the, around chapter two of the book, you describe the arrival of Europeans to the American West as an environmental revolution. You use pretty strong language. In what ways did this revolution manifest itself? How was this a revolution in the American West?
0: Well, you know, when we talk about a revolution, you have to talk about fundamental change. Um, So when we talk about the American Revolution, for example, we talk about a fundamental change from um, living under a monarchy to um, shifting to a republic. And in many ways, the environment is going to have to change so dramatically once Europeans come because of something called the Columbian Exchange. Um, When Columbus and his ships arrived on that other coast in 1492, you know, he's almost assuredly not the first European. There were probably Vikings Who sailed to the Americas uh, even 500 years before that? But what makes important, what makes Columbus important is not that he's first, because he's almost assuredly not, but that the connection he makes lasts. In history, we call what he inaugurates, in many ways, the reconnection of old world and new world, the Columbian exchange after him. And it's the exchange of people, plants, animals, and diseases. And it's really hard to um, overstate how significant a, a revolution it truly was because, um, you know, there are plants that are going to come with the Europeans that profoundly shape um, the nature of, of the American West. And there are plants and, and uh, animals in the West that will shape the lives of the rest of the world. Um, the rest of the world doesn't have corn or beans or squash, these uh, or potatoes, these fundamental staples of, of the European diet are all products of the new world that will go back um, as a result of the Colombian exchange. But we in the Americas, in the West in particular, we don't have um, domesticated animals, for example. So when we think of uh, Navajos with their sheep, they don't have sheep until Europeans bring them. When we think of horse-mounted bison hunters on the Great Plains, that's not going to happen until the Europeans bring horses back because horses were part of the Great Pleistocene extinctions about 10,000 years ago. And so it's it's an absolutely dramatic transformation. Without those domesticated animals, life experiences are going to be very different for uh, the peoples of the West, and once they come, they're going to have to adjust. Plus, Europeans are going to bring with them ideas about a new uh, economy, a market-based economy, and that, too, will have long-term repercussions for people living in the West.
1: And with that new market economy that you describe in the book... You talk a lot about the commodification of nature, which happens fairly early on. When you talk about the commodification of nature, what do you mean by that exactly? What is getting commodified?
0: So the idea behind the commodification of nature is that um, when when people are living a subsistence form of um, existence, it means that they're concentrating primarily on Things having value because they help you live. You either eat them, you plant them, you utilize them um, to make your life better, that sort of thing. But when you're talking about the introduction of a market system, you give items value outside of their ability to help you survive. They have value as a status symbol, for example. And so the introduction of a market economy changes the way people think about really fundamental and basic things. And in essence, it sort of shrinks your perspective on what has value. You no longer look at the natural world and think, ah, you know, I can eat that um, or I can um, use that uh, tree or something like that. Things begin to have value only based on what sort of wealth that they'll generate. And far fewer things have value in a market than they do in a subsistence economy. So it, it it absolutely changes the basic way in which you look at the world around you. Something as simple as land, when you make it private property and you want to think about bounding it with a fence, that changes the way you see it. You don't look at it as a um, something that will provide you with subsistence. You look at it as a status wealth symbol, and that changes how you value it and how you interact with it.
1: And one of the ways that this happens, as you describe it, is through the Land Ordinance Act of 1785, and I really appreciated the in-depth discussion that you included in the book about that act, because you call it one of the lesser known but most important legislative acts in the history of the American West, and I agree with you, but can you tell us (laughs) Can you tell us why you make that claim? What is that act and why does it have such a profound impact on the American West?
0: Well, so the act is the, the single act It's one of the few um, things you can point to that the Confederation Congress passed that you actually remember and that endures uh, that very brief system of government we had before our constitution, but it was a way of distributing land. And prior to the ordinance, we had described land based on its physical properties and you sold land based on its physical utilitarian uh, abilities. So you would never have purchased, for example, if you were a farmer, a piece of land that had no water running through it. You would have ensured that the land description included water running through it. But the land ordinance creates a grid system that we imposed um, across the entire rest of the United States. And it describes um, all land and therefore real estate in these abstract terms of uh, township and range and section and quarter section. And this grid pays no attention to the physical realities of the landscape. It's just you've got the next quarter section next to this quarter section and does it have water on it? You have no idea because the numbers and the the grid terminology simply describe a commodity that is land rather than the physical possibility that is land and the uh, utility that is land. So it was a, a way of commodifying land that stripped it of its environmental uh, possibility and made it solely a market-derived um, thing that could be bought or sold. And you actually had to go look at it in order to know what in the world it was that you had bought. And, and that really changes things because now you're going to be stuck buying land just on this system and, and you have to go figure out, well, what if the, the river is in the next section? Well, maybe you have to buy this whole section and then you've got to buy the next section too because otherwise you don't have water for your section. It, it becomes a very distancing, unfortunate um, reality that gets imposed on land, but it's a way to commodify land and, and remove its obvious utility.
1: So it's very much a new way of thinking about lands in the American West,
0: really. Absolutely. Yeah, one that's divorced from what's on the land or how one can derive subsistence from it. It's all about how to sell it and buy it efficiently.
1: Right. Uh, Chapter four of your book has a very evocative title. I I liked it a lot. Uh, You you call chapter four The Great Barbecue. Um, Yes. Can you tell us about The Great Barbecue? What was The Great Barbecue and why does it matter?
0: Well, the great barbecue is a a term that is not mine. It's Vernon Tarrington's, and he came up with this idea as a way to describe what we were doing with our lands in the West. Um, We had gone through this great sort of gulping acquisition phase in American history where um, in a really short period of time. So when you think about it, the end of the American Revolution, 1783, Treaty of Paris, the western boundary of the United States is the Mississippi River. Um, In 1803, uh, Jefferson buys the Louisiana Purchase, and with the stroke of his pen, more than double the size of the United States, like that. And then within 50 years of that, we span as a nation from sea to shining sea. We are from Atlantic to the Pacific. And the way for any country that is acquiring land in those kinds of uh, quantities. The way for you as a, a nation to assert your sovereignty over that land is to settle it with your citizens. You want people loyal to your country to settle in these new places. And the best way to get people to go settle in a new place is to give it away like a barbecue. And that was Parrington's concern was that we were giving away the wealth of the nation. And we were uh, with the Homestead Act, with the Timber and Stone Act. um, We were trying to transfer public lands into private hands as fast as we possibly could. And it makes sense. It's how the United States wanted to try and extend its sovereignty over what was a huge swath of land. But at the same time, we did so without thinking about the, the question that, as you well know from having read my book, I ask a lot. At what cost? At what cost do we simply give away things and then decide that that the market is what should uh, create value for all of these things? So, you know, let's give away farmland. Let's give away mineral lands. Let's let's give away this wealth. And true enough, it does bring people to settle in the West in numbers that otherwise would not have been possible. But the ecological consequences of that are gonna be very far reaching.
1: And one of the main characters that emerges uh, during this, this great barbecue, as, as you call it, is George Perkins Marsh. He's a crucial early character in this story. Tell us about him. Why was he important around the mid 19th century in the United States?
0: So uh, George Perkins Marsh is, is um, someone who wrote a book called Man and Nature, in which he was very presciently aware that there were, there were consequences. He was actually asking that at what cost question. And he was asking that at what cost do we develop and, and give away um, things like as if they were a great barbecue. He was asking that question because he'd spent some time in Europe. He'd spent time in Europe in the Alps and he had seen what Europeans had done to their natural environment. He had seen that if you um, privatize mountaintops, which are the sources of all your rivers, then you run the risk of of contaminating them. And and you'd better pay attention to the sources of your natural resources, especially your water in an arid place like the West, lest you ruin them and make all of this grand experiment for naught. Um, So marsh was this early cautionary voice of, you know, pay attention here, pay attention to what happens when you exploit without any sort of, of parameters. And it's his ideas that ultimately will lead us to create things like the forest reserves and the national forests, where we recognize that we better protect our, our forest resources that were the genesis of so many of our water resources in the West, Because in the West, if you don't have water, you don't have much of anything else.
1: After Marsh writes his book, uh, you describe um, the decades after, particularly the 1890s, as the pivotal decade um, in in the midpoint of your your book. What made the 1890s so pivotal in the history of um, environments in the American West?
0: Well, the 1890s are in, in some ways this this marker in American history where we as a nation began to pay attention to um, the at what cost question. Um, We had overfished our um, salmon fisheries, for example, we had done a big cut out of our timber in um, the upper great lakes areas. And so now we had stumps and we were beginning to turn that effort now toward the Pacific Northwest. The, um, gold rush in California had laid waste while generating wealth, but had laid waste to um, the environments along uh, the rivers and streams as those gold miners had had surged. And so we began to recognize that there are shockingly limits to the ecological wonders we had. We had been so tantalized, I think, by the ecological abundance that had confronted us that we hadn't. Thought about there being limitations and in the 1890s as a nation much less as a region we begin to at least um, confront this idea of limitation and I think one of the sources of that that sort of got people thinking in addition to the visual blight that, that sometimes visited upon these um, lost resources was this um, historian uh, Frederick Jackson Turner who wrote about the closing of the frontier. The 1890 census had said that the frontier was closed. And and what that meant in the terms of the census was that there was no longer any place in the continental United States where the population density was fewer than two people per square mile. And that was their definition of a, a, a frontier. And by 1890, by the 1890 census, we had effectively, it seemed, filled in our country. And for Turner, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, a historian, that had him pausing for, well, so what does this mean? Especially if it was, as he argued, our interaction with the frontier that had really shaped us as Americans. It's where we had gotten the very qualities that made us independent, self-reliant, democratic. Those had all derived from our interaction with the frontier. So if the frontier is gone, then at then where, then where do we go? How do we maintain our unique American identity? So there's that. But there's also, in 1890, by the 1890s, you have the conclusion of the, the Plains Indian Wars. And in and of itself, that was a, a sort of horrible ending to what had been a very long ecological relationship between people and nature in the American West, And the uh, destruction of so many of these tribes, their forcible removal of relocation um, kind of comes to its horrible conclusion in um, 1890 um, with uh, Wounded Knee. And so there is a a general sort of reckoning nationwide with all sorts of things. Is this the end of American exceptionalism? How do we... um, reconcile ourselves to this loss of the frontier? What does it mean to to relocate a, a population of of individuals who have had this long relationship with nature? We're going to have a, a very different relationship with nature that takes its place. At what cost do we do that? So all of these things, for me at least, seem to converge in the 1890s. And that's why why to me it seems like a really pivotal decade. We have to start reconciling what we've done with where we're going.
1: One of the cases that you make for the 1890s to be such a pivotal decade uh, centers in on a number of animals in the American West, particularly um, bison, wolves, and salmon. What happens to those and other animals as the 19th century winds down, and what effect does it have on the various ecologies of the American West?
0: So when the United States... um, created itself as a new nation, it has this goal of acquiring territory. And as we talked about just a minute ago, we do so in some pretty big gulfs. And so the motivation is to to settle onto those places. And we want to settle on those places um, as a sort of as a national priority. We want to settle in those places in the way we already know how, which is either agriculturally or ranching. And for Americans at the time, those two modes of, of interacting again with the market demanded the removal of anything that threatened the viability economically of those endeavors. And so uh, if you're an agriculturalist and you want to move out onto the Great Plains, which we do um, with a lot of vigor after world, or after, excuse me, the Civil War with the Homestead Act, that means you need to eliminate all of the things that make it difficult for you to farm out there. Um, And bison will eat things that you want to farm, and Indian horses will eat things that you want to farm, plus they're on your land that you want. Of course, it's not your land, it's their land, but you don't want to hear that argument. So, um, you know, in many ways, the war on the plains is about removing the people who are there so that A new group can come in and impose their vision on the landscape Um, and if you're going to be a cattle rancher which also um, really explodes as an economic possibility at the end of of the Civil War then you have to eliminate all the things that threaten your cattle livelihood and again bison and Indian horses compete directly with cattle for um, grass Uh, predators will take out your valuable cow commodities. And so you start eliminating them. And the bison story is in many ways the the iconic story there. And it's not a simple one. It's one that is very much informed by um, understanding environmental history. That I think if you went out and did one of those person-on-the-street interviews and you asked 100 people, you know, so bison nearly went extinct. What caused that? I think probably 99, if not all 100 of them, would say, oh, well, you know, white hunters kill them. And that's not the answer. I mean, if you want a simple answer, you'd have to say something like the market killed them. But bison were in decline by the 1830s or 1840s uh, because of the market. And it's not only white market hunters, it's native people who have moved out onto the plains and they've left behind agriculture. And so they need uh, not only bison for their sustenance, but they need them as a trade item. They need them for um, the agricultural products they're no longer producing. They need them for the metal goods that make hide processing possible. They need them for guns, to trade for guns, for the warfare, for these um, plains territories. So they're involved. You get um, competition with um, cows that are eating the same grass that the bison need. The Indians are expanding their horse herds so that they can more effectively hunt bison, except expanded horse herds eat the same grass that the bison eat. And then all of this is sort of predicated on the plains being wet. And when you get a drought, that sort of foundational element, the grass, the thing that sustains everything out from it, when the drought comes, everything is gonna crash. Um, And that's really what you get. It's it's only in the 1870s that you have these market hide hunters, white market hide hunters kind of finishing off the bison um, from a number that was probably, we think, even in the wettest years, maybe 30 million bison on the Great Plains by the time we get to the end of the Civil War, you're talking maybe 10 to 12 million bison, um, and they're going to just continue to crash from there. And when you take out the predators, um, and, and once the bison are, are diminishing, then hunters turn to uh, pronghorns. And we go from 15 million pronghorns to um, right around the turn of the century, maybe 13,000 total Um, A victim not only of hunting, but also of the barbed wire fences that come with the ranchers and the farmers. Um, One of the interesting pieces about uh, antelope is that they never evolved the ability to jump. So they can't jump over barbed wire fences. So when these big storms would come barreling down the Great Plains, these, uh, I mean, it's tragic. These antelope or these pronghorns would pile up against these fences and literally die by the thousands just piled up one on top of another. So uh, we got rid of those and you get rid of bison and you get rid of the antelope and you get rid of elk and you get rid of the predators like wolves. Then you're going to get rid of other predators like grizzly bears. And so basically you're creating this empty zone that is the great plains. What, when some people have called no more interesting than a parking lot these days. And We just systematically, in a really short period of time, wiped out most of the incredible bestiary that was on this, what one author has called the American Serengeti. I mean, just this incredible wildlife bonanza, and it was all gone. Um, And basically that happens, and by the 1890s, they're all gone.
1: The 1890s are also pivotal because um, in the aftermath, at the very beginning of the 20th century, you start to see a new manner of thinking about the environment in the American West. Um, Partially this involves Theodore Roosevelt and his presidency, as well as competing ideas of preservation versus conservation. Can you talk a little bit about what begins to change at the beginning of the 20th century and these two competing ideals about how the interaction between people and the non-human world should be?
0: Sure. So, a lot of what happens is that, you know, when things are um, abundant, we take them for granted, and they don't have nearly as much value. When things become scarce, um, suddenly we recognize that there's a scarcity, and their value increases. Uh, it's like I tell my students: there's a reason why M and M's aren't as expensive as diamonds, um, and it has to do with the De Beers company. But we won't go into that. But um, once you start seeing, once Americans start seeing that we're we're pushing animals to the brink of extinction, whether it's bison or passenger pigeons, when we've filled up, it seems our our nat- our national landscape, when we've devastated salmon, when we've wiped out wolves, when we've done all these things, then the the value of them begins to reemerge. And interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first groups that begins to sort of agitate for a changing valuation of nature is sportsmen. Um, Sportsmen like Theodore Roosevelt who begin to say, wait a minute, if if we wipe out all of the elk, if we wipe out all of the grizzly bear, if if we kill all the passenger pigeons and all of the ducks, then there won't be anything for me to go hunt anymore. And I don't like that either. And so conservation becomes an effort to conserve resources for future use. It has a utilitarian purpose to it. Um, and so conservation, people like Theodore Roosevelt, particularly strong spokesman for this idea of conservation, a recognition that natural resources are limited and that if we don't protect them, if we don't conserve them, we won't have them. For the future and and that would be a tragedy. So when Theodore Roosevelt is president, for example, it's one of the reasons that he consolidates the forest reserves into the National Forest Service. I'm sorry, the United States Forest Service. He creates a Forest Service in 1905 to manage the nation's forests and as a good indication of why this is an illustration of conservation, you only have to look at where the U.S. Forest Service is housed in the federal government. It's in the Department of Agriculture. Um, Trees are a crop, we're gonna manage them like a crop so that as the first chief of the Forest Service said, we will have forests for the home builder first of all, so that we will always have trees to be able to use um, in our, our economy, in our society. By contrast, although not always in opposition, There were also those who began to recognize the at-what-cost question at the beginning of the 20th century was costing us to lose the aesthetic beauty that was uh, the natural world around us, Um, and probably the person most clearly associated with that idea is John Muir. And John Muir, um, who was a champion for Yosemite in California, very much wanted us to value nature, but not so much in board feet of timber and acre feet of water as in its aesthetic. What it could offer to us just to enrich our lives, not financially, but emotionally, spiritually, etc. And so there are some really wonderful examples of Roosevelt the conservationist and Muir the preservationist working together to set aside Um, the valley in Yosemite National Park to protect a number of other national parks and to set aside, you know, under Roosevelt, we get all kinds of uh, national monuments, national parks, seashores, the first uh, wildlife refuge for bison is established by him. But where those things could come at into conflict with one another was when the utilitarian usurped the Um, aesthetic and probably the most famous example of that is what happened in um, in Yosemite and Hetch Hetchy. Um, A good conservationist would argue that damming the Hetch Hetchy Valley to provide a reliable source of water for San Francisco made perfect sense. That's classic conservation, conserving a resource in this case, water for future use by people who desperately need it. Um, But for someone like Muir, Damming Hetch Hetchy was just a a terrible tragedy you were going to mar this beautiful aesthetic sublime place Um, but conservation won the day in the early 20th century we did put a dam the Oshanksi Dam in Hetch Hetchy um, and San Francisco got water and some people say it literally broke Muir's heart he died before uh, the valley flooded um, one suspects so he didn't ever have to see them
1: and the role of dams um, comes up again and again in your book, In the American West, um, particularly going into the 1920s and 1930s, into the, the era just before World War II, um, and extra particularly in regards to the Colorado River. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the role, the importance of water in the American West before, but what do, what do these large-scale dams do to change the um, ecologies of the American West?
0: So the idea that the West is arid, I mean, except for the extreme coastlines, the West is arid. And that is something that was a reality. We as a nation were reluctant to confront. If you're going to be an agriculturally viable region, you got to have water. If you're going to have uh, ranching as an economically viable means, if you're going to settle a lot of people in a particular place, you've got to have a lot of water and, We just don't. And so the way to solve that, according to somebody like John Wesley Powell, was to only settle people where there was water. But that puts limits on us. You can't settle here. You can settle here. And we hate that. We absolutely hate that. So we're going to decide instead that the solution is we'll bring the water to where the people are. And so in 1902, we passed the Newlands Reclamation Act, which committed the federal government to providing water to the arid West, mostly because it's such a fiscally daunting prospect to water the arid West that it's really only something of the magnitude of the federal government that could afford to do such a thing. And so um, Starting in 1902, the federal government gets behind the building of what Don Worcester, the historian, environmental historian, has called this hydraulic society. Basically, we engineered the water of the West to make it possible to live in places like Los Angeles and Phoenix and Las Vegas, where otherwise you just can't really live there because there's no water. At least there's not enough for the now millions that, that live there. And particularly in the 1930s, when we were in the middle of the Great Depression, those uh, water projects not only provided irrigation um, and uh, navigation and flood control and power generation, but the building of those projects created jobs, created jobs in an economically depressed West that that made the difference for a lot of people working on those um, projects of, of, of having a job or, or not, being able to feed your family or not. So in addition to sort of engineering the water of the West, it was a way in some ways to um, economically help the West through uh, the incredible devastation that was the Great Depression.
1: Moving ahead a little bit, I... Very much enjoyed, um, sort of heartbreaking as it was, your discussion of the role of nuclear power in the American West and the atomic bomb. Can you talk a little bit about what role atomic weapons and atomic energy played in the history of the American West during and immediately after World War II? How did these change the ecology of the West?
0: So one of the the advantages that the West has is that it's got a lot of open spaces, Um what many people don't realize is that the West is actually the most urbanized region of the United States, but it's that way because people cluster in the cities because there's water there and then they leave these big open spaces. And what that meant during world war one or excuse me, world war two in particular was because there's now, uh, because we had fought a two front war in the Pacific uh, and the Atlantic, which we had not in World War One, there had been the need for a very rapid development of the military-industrial complex in the West. And uh, the West's arid, wide-open stretches provided these tremendous opportunities for Air Force bases, but also for these nuclear test facilities. Um, it's really tough to test an atomic bomb in you know, Manhattan or something like that. That's not going to happen. But shoot, you just drop a bunch of them out in the middle of Nevada, and you get a few jackrabbits in a well. So for uh, you know the, the development of uh, the atomic West, uh, the aridity in the open spaces had been very essential. And so uh, the focus of um, much of the science had been out in the West, in places like um, New Mexico at Los Alamos Lab. And then the testing sites, because again, in those open spaces in Nevada, we have been able to drop bombs, see what they were going to do, how they were going to detonate, um, develop even more and more sort of impressive weaponry um, as the Cold War heated up um, after World War II. But the at-what-cost question was one we didn't even, I think, in some ways know to ask at the time. Um, there are these horrifying pictures of people with like modified sunglasses at these atomic test blast parties where you would literally sit in bleachers with these supposedly protected glasses on and watch them make mushroom clouds out in the middle of the Vegas desert. And then everybody would get in their car and go home and talk about how interesting that was without recognizing that what was in those mushroom clouds didn't just sort of go away. It's a very sinister cargo, and it gets borne by the westerlies, those those winds that blow so consistently from west to east. And the toxic cargo that's in those clouds gets blown into population centers that we begin to see, especially in Utah and Nevada, um, we begin to see these clusters of cancers and um, all kinds of thyroid issues, just horrific health problems for what we began to call downwinders, those people who were living literally downwind from these uh, nuclear test sites. And, and the results were deadly. Um, and, we, and we've had to acknowledge formally as a nation, uh, we actually now have a fund where we pay out to victims. Um, we had to acknowledge we did this to our own people, uh, much less to the people we dropped these on.
1: The last couple chapters of the book hinge on two characters in particular, Senator Frank Church and Secretary James Watt. Can you tell us about these two men and why they're so uh, important to the history of um, the environment in the American West?
0: So I wanted to tell the story about kind of the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s, but not in the traditional, you know, and then we passed this act and then we passed this act because I felt like that was the story everybody knows. And I feel like the story that not a lot of people know is this remarkable senator from Idaho, a Western senator who was involved in many of these seminal pieces of legislation, the Wilderness Act, Wild and Scenic Rivers, Land and Water Conservation Fund. I mean, he's really at, at the center of of a lot of these issues and he's at the center in a way that I felt was um, in many ways important at the time but also potentially informative for the future and that is that he was someone who thought about creating consensus he understood that for example in Idaho Wilderness was not an obvious um, topic for him to champion. Not in a state that's making a lot of money on extraction of natural resources, um, trying to attract hydraulic dams into your state, hydroelectric dams into your state. This is not a, a logical thing, but he came to understand the value of balance of yes, we need to uh, provide economically for the people of the state, for the state, for the nation. But not everything has to be sacrificed to economy. We can have both economy and environment. And I appreciated that so much because a lot of times uh, rhetoric tends to pit those two against one another. It's either the economy or the environment. And what Church, I think, did a really nice job of was was showing that sometimes a good environment creates a better economy. And so just to give an illustration, um, he wanted to create a wilderness area in Idaho in what's called the Gospel Hump area. It's, It's an area in between two mountains. And it's right in the center of Idaho. There was a lot of timber industry opposition to that. Chambers of Commerce were opposed to it. And yet the Sierra Club and others like that were pushing it. And he said, okay, I want you all to come together and we're going to talk about this. And, um, you know, I've read a lot of accounts of these meetings initially, and there was a lot of opposition. Sierra Clubbers are saying, no way are we going to sit down with these timber beasts and the Chamber of Commerce saying we're not going to sit down with those long-haired men and short-haired women. There's none of that's going to happen. But church brought them together, and he said, look, I want to make a wilderness. If you guys will figure out what the parameters of it are, I'll champion it. And in talking to several of the people who were actually at those meetings, they said, as soon as he made us sit down, what we discovered was that what we had in common was far greater than what we had in difference. And in the course of a a year or so of negotiation, they came to a very amenable consensus among all of them about yes these are better timberlands we don't need them in the wilderness area yes these are marginal timberlands sure they can go in the wilderness area and they all signed on to this agreement which they were passionate about defending and some of them have remained um lifelong friends even though their politics are very different. And we have a gospel hump wilderness area because of that and because of church. So that idea of creating consensus and cooperation of figuring out what people had in common rather than what they had in difference, I thought made church a really remarkable example. And I thought that James Watt became kind of the opposite of that. In some ways, he emphasized what people had in difference rather than what they had in common. And it was, to me, emblematic of this environmental backlash that came in the 1980s. And always there's going to be a pendulum. We had so much environmental progress in the 60s and 70s that there was this sense, especially when the economy turned around uh, and and began to decline some, no, we need to go back and and push more for um, economy. And so to me, George... Or James Watt was an illustration of, of what happens when we go too far in the other direction, when we can't even talk about anything we have in common um, and everything we have in difference. I mean, he said at one point, um, I don't call them uh, Republicans and Democrats. I call them uh, or, or liberals and, and Republicans. Uh, he said, I call them Uh, Democrats and Americans or something like that, you know, it's like, oh, good heavens, you gotta be kidding me, that's not helpful at all. Um, So in some ways, I thought if we're going to talk about how difficult and sort of divisive the 80s had been, I wanted to show that no, there is this possibility too of, of creating consensus. Here's one example and here's the other.
1: I see. And then you end the book on, if not quite a hopeful note, at the very least you ended on a call to action, and a very important and well-worded well, well worded call to action at that. Part of the title to your last chapter, to the epilogue, is The Triumph of the Commons, which you um, you say in opposition to an earlier phrase that you used, the tragedy of the commons. Um, what do you mean by the triumph of the commons?
0: Well, I, so I one of the things that I do is I teach environmental history and no student wants to take a doom and gloom, bummer history class. And I just, no, nobody wants that. And I sure didn't want to write a book that was just, you know, chapter after chapter of boy, we screwed up, man, you just made a mess of this whole thing and then left it at that. That that's not helpful to me. That doesn't help us move forward. And so what I wanted people to be able to, to think about this book and, and I didn't write this book for as a classroom book. In fact, as I like to tell people, I wrote it for my dad. Uh, my dad is a is well educated, but he he's not a historian. He's not an environmental uh, advocate or anything. But he's lived in the West for much of his life, and he wanted to know more. And so th- that's the sort of person I wanted to write this for. And I wanted to write then too of a way to be thinking about moving into the future in a more hopeful fashion. And so. My, my thinking is that just as no one person created environmental damage or, or um, destruction, it, it's, it's not a single person's responsibility to, you know, change the world. I mean, if you come up with a way to change the world, by all means, you know, you go for it. But, but the idea is that in the tragedy of the commons, it's not that your individual action is going to destroy the planet. It, it's not. Uh, it, it really is not. But it's that when everybody acts in their own self-interest, the collective tragedy becomes a, a disaster. Here along the Wasatch Front, for example, in the wintertime, we get terrible um, inversion. The air quality is horrible. And it's primarily because of cars. And so if I go out and drive my car I'm not going to cause some child to have an asthma attack. It's it's, that's not going to be my fault. But when everybody says that and we all individually get in our cars and drive, that's where the tragedy of this common action occurs. And so my argument and the the conclusion is that what we need to have is, is a triumph, not a tragedy of the commons, where instead of thinking about what's the best thing for me, how do I single handedly get what I want? When we start thinking collectively about the good of the group and you think, well, I could take the bus today. I could ride my bike to work today. I could carpool with someone. Are you going to change the world? No, probably not. But if we all begin to think in those ways, then I think there are real changes. And we are at this kind of critical tipping point where the possibilities for making change, especially given what we've just experienced with these devastating hurricanes that just keep wang, wanging, wanging on on us. There's no doubt in in most scientists' minds that they have been strengthened and and made worse by climate change. So we're at a critical moment and we have to think collectively or else we're simply not going to make change fast enough to, to make a difference. And that's my hope. People will read this and think, I want to make a difference.
1: It's a really wonderful point to end, uh, end the book on. And Sarah, we've taken up a good amount of your time today. So before we go, I am just curious, though, what um, are you working on now? Do you have another project in mind?
0: Well, of course. Um, I've got a couple of things. I'm working on a history of the Weber River, which is uh, flows just outside um, of where I live here in Ogden, Utah. And um, particularly looking at how people used it right around the time of statehood and and why this river became really important in the local economy. But then on a larger scale, I'm also looking at this piece of legislation that many people don't uh, know much about called the land and water conservation fund. It was um, brought into law the same day actually as the wilderness act. And in many ways it's been the silent mighty cousin of a lot of environmental um, protection. And, um, And so I'd like to do a history of that and talk about why that's been such a powerful act. And it's very bipartisan, which seems to be a common theme running through a lot of my
1: work. Those both sound like great projects. Great. Sarah Dant is a professor of history at Weber State University in Utah, and her new book is called Losing Eden An Environmental History of the American West, which has just been published by Wiley Blackwell. Sarah, thank you so much for being on New Books in the American West today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure.